Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Gabriel Milland, who's a partner at Portland Communications. He'd also been a partner at Public First, but he's here today to talk predominantly about his time as special advisor to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson between March and July 2020, when coronavirus first hit. He was inside number 10, and his insights about public opinion during that time, and wider public opinion stuff, this is amazing. So I know it's long. As always, I kept him longer than I promised. So this was recorded over two sessions because I interviewed him for an hour one day and he understandably had to leave after an hour because he's got a life and he's got an important job and he had something else on. So then I recorded a second bit with um, Gabriel on Saturday morning, which was very, very kind of him. But I was so immersed, so fascinated that an hour, we just... There was so much more to talk about. And by the end of the whole interview, we go into another area about how the difference in young and old and their social attitudes and their voting behaviour and intention, that is a whole other world. This is um, as satisfying as those Deborah Massenson episodes. When you talk to these people who can marry uh, a great research brain, asking the right questions of the public... I guarantee you there are things in here that are going to um, surprise you, that might make you think differently, or might just check some of your opinions about individuals and about parts of the country, why they think things, uh, and even within that, segmenting elements of the electorate. That This is just a a box of surprises from start to finish. and And just so much absolutely cold political sense throughout the whole thing married with this great array of uh just bits that really just you realize sometimes in politics you're making a whole load of assumptions that are frankly baseless and wrong and this is a corrective to some of those things it's just so enjoyable and gabriel talks so well so frankly and has this phenomenal experience. So as well as the stuff about the public, there's also the stuff about what it was like to be inside number 10 during the coronavirus pandemic at its early stages. So this is just a treat in every regard. And um, before we come on to the interview, I can now reveal the full lineup uh, of the opening run of the political party in the West End. And they're absolutely superb. So I was able to announce some of the guests last week. Um, the first show is a week today. If you listen to this the day uh, the show is released, a week today on Monday, the 27th of September, my first ever guest at this new West End run is Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Manchester. That show takes place during Labour Party Conference Week. This is the first proper Labour Party conference that Keir Starmer has had. It's always a circus, regardless of who the leader is. And all that usual Labour Party stuff about... How left-wing the membership is? Are speeches going to be heckled? What's the relationship with the trade unions? What is the direction of the Labour Party? Really, this is the first time that we've seen the Labour Party together since Jeremy Corbyn lost the election. This is the first time, really, the public are going to be introduced to what the Labour Party actually is now. So that week is going to be ballistic. And what a guest to have. Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Manchester. Never been on the show before. Um, He was booked a few years ago. And then I think he was actually booked... Um, for the run where, sadly, once COVID hit and then um, 
obviously just everything got cancelled. So I would have had him on uh, around that time. Obviously, so much has happened in that time. He's effectively not just the mayor of Manchester, the, the, the representative of the north of England in British politics. Um, and of course had those two big showdowns, one with the Westminster government, one with the Scottish government. So he's got so much to say, and I'm sure he will have a lot to say on the direction of the Labour Party right now, and indeed, his future. Will he be the mayor of Manchester forever? Who knows? Um, well, there's, uh, we will know, hopefully, on the 27th of September. So come down to that. That's the first one. Two weeks later, Penny Morden, the first ever Secretary of St female Secretary of State for Defence, she was on the uh, hit show Splash, where she had to leap on various different diving boards. And, um, of course, most famously, said the word cock six times on the floor of the House of Commons. It's a remarkable achievement. On the 25th of October, I can now announce my guest will be Caroline Flint. Again, someone I've been desperate to get on the show um, and have never had on before. And, oh boy, does Caroline Flint have a lot to say. A phenomenal career. I mean, one of... Those rising stars of the Labour ranks of the of the sort of mid-term, really, around 2001. I really remember Caroline Flint, of course, very outspoken under Gordon Brown's leadership uh, and has had a fantastic and still enjoys a, a brilliant media, media career since. A, a brilliant communicator and one with a very unique perspective. So that is, I'm so excited that Caroline's coming on. Two weeks after that, the leader of Scottish Labour, Anna Sawa. Again, another star in British politics. Um, it'd be brilliant to talk to him about what it's like to be going up against a, an opponent in Nicola Sturgeon, a party in the SNP that are just so popular, relentlessly popular, and how he can try and chip away at that, as well as his wider views on Labour politics. Two weeks after that, the 22nd November, that show's going to be at the Vaudeville Theatre on the 22nd. Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, is coming over from New York, the man who was White House Director of Communications for 10 days under Donald Trump, and then they had a spectacular falling out, uh, is coming over. I mean, none of these are to be missed, but my word. And then on the 6th of December, the former Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, now chair and former Foreign Secretary, of course, now chair of the Health Select Committee, one of the most effective voices at holding the government to account, um, is uh, joining me live on the stage. So, oh my word, the guests, Andy Burnham, Penny Morden, Caroline Flynn, Anna Sawa, Anthony Scaramucci, Jeremy Hunt. That is like a fantasy football team. Of political heavyweights, and they're just the opening few shows. I've got a whole load more guests um, to book. The 20th of December, by the way, will be a Christmas special with MP4, uh, uh, the fantastic cross-party parliamentary rock band who always do the Christmas specials, and the guest for that is is to be announced in due course. So that takes us to the end of the year, which is a thrill, and then there's a whole load of new shows next year. Tickets for all those you can get by going to mattford.com slash live. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, with your tales of strange or mundane encounters with politicians. Carl's been in touch. He says, back when Ian Duncan Smith was in charge of the DWP, he came up to Enfield in London as some sort of campaign effort. During this talk, walkabout, I think he means, in Enfield, he decided to knock on my mum's door. It was a mistake. You make it sound like he knew that was your mum's house, Carl. He said, I've got, got a knock on Carl's mum's front door. Anyway, Carl says, it was a mistake. When my mum answered the door, he said, can I count on your vote for the Conservatives? Her reply was thus, no, you haven't done anything for any of us. You're quick to take and slow to give. No sooner had she finished her response, she slammed the door in his face before he could reply. Wow. Well, Carl, 
He says, a bit of background, my family is working class and so my mum has had to apply for benefits along with medical living allowances with large amounts of frustration, annoyance and humiliation over the years. Well, Carl, do let me know. <laughs> I don't know whether Ian Duncan Smith... I don't know if you then watched through the window as he left, but my word. Uh, if you've ever given a mouthful to a politician on the doorstep, get in touch, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. On to today's guest, Gabriel Milland. Also, what's in this? I mean, I keep remembering so many moments. I'm often overstimulated after these um, conversations. I felt high after talking to Gabriel. I was like, oh my word. I felt like Bradley Cooper in Limitless. I was like, oh my God, I see the world so much more (laughs) clearly now. It felt like everything was in HD after talking to him. Uh, This includes, perhaps surprising, details about Dominic Cummings, Dominic Raab, Matt Hancock. Uh, and I think in a way, more importantly, more interestingly, insights about different parts of the country and what people think. So if you enjoyed the Deborah Madison, Deborah Madison? If you enjoyed the Deborah Madison episodes, and why wouldn't you have? This is an absolute treat. So I won't keep you any longer. Um, I began by asking Gabriel, before he worked at number 10, and as well as working for Public First, he'd worked at a number of different government departments, and they were all ones that I think had coincided with Michael Gove being there. So education and justice and, um, oh, what was the other one? The Cabinet Office. Um, So I began by asking Gabriel whether he'd always been Gove's guy. I, I, you know... uh... I came into um, the civil service. I was hired as a civil servant um, at the Department for Education, and that's kind of the period of high early Govism, if you want to talk about it uh, like like that, uh, during the more sort of uh, kinetic uh, phase uh, of education reform. Um, but I worked with Nikki Morgan when she was Secretary of State um, at Education as well, and then uh, at Justice. Um, as well, where I worked um, for Michael right up until uh, he uh, was dispensed with uh, that. But I moved to the cabinet office. Um, I moved to the cabinet office. Uh, he wasn't um, minister for the cabinet office then um, at all. It was um, various different people, um, I think, during my time. Now, I've forgotten who was the minister for the cabinet office, but I didn't have much to do with them. It was very much an internal civil service focused role. But yeah. Um, I've had uh, quite a bit to do with, uh, with with Michael over the years, and I admire him quite a lot. I'm a fan. Because, in a way, his time at education has been uh, going through, uh, I think rehabilitation is probably the, quite, the right word, particularly with the A-level and GCSE results this year, and the drive that he and Dominic Cummings had to, to really drive students towards STEM subjects. Yeah. Seems to have borne fruit, and, and this is the first year that people have said, actually... That was quite a good idea and, and good on them for doing it. Well, I don't think everything that he did um, has, um, and he'd be probably be the first to admit that, uh, uh, and one of the ways that we did things was to kind of accept that there will be failures um, along the way. But I'm not a tribal Tory in the least. Um, the very opposite. My background is in the Labour Party. I was Labour Party activist for many years. Uh, uh, but I was uh, attracted as someone who went to a, a comp myself, um, a good comp, a really good comp, one that my sister teaches at now and that 
both of my nephews went to, who've done fantastic things, are going to be admirable young men. Um, I was really attracted by that vision of comprehensive schools that taught the best that have been said and done, um, and that had high expectations, high academic expectations for pupils. Because when I went to a school like that, even though you know it was the more middle class kids like me who were you know dominated the top set, there were kids who were being brought out of really difficult situations like that and when I look at the sort of schools that my children have been to some of them um you know quite inner city London comprehensives among them that vision of social mobility of education as a way of delivering social mobility um is really attractive so I was, I was you know I, I was quite attractive by like by that go vision, to be honest, um, and the kind of no excuses culture, to be honest, and the knowledge rich curriculum. I think it was an interesting time, and there's still there's still a lot of debate around it. And people say, well, Michael would have done more if he had taken more people with him, and there is some merit to that argument. But effectively, a lot of what we did, for want of a better term, we did Gonzo. You know, one of Michael Gove's verbal tags is it's always later than you think and so we didn't mess around um, and uh, made enemies of a large chunk of the teaching profession and people associated with education and it's an interesting question it'll be down to the historians could we have achieved more or would the changes have been better implemented or whatever if uh, if uh, there had been a more emollient approach and if you look at what Michael did when he went on to justice, where he had an interesting year. Um, he changed his approach drastically on that. Um, and he made every attempt to bring, for example, he wanted to do serious things in prison reform, there's no doubt about it. And that again was something that uh, I was really attracted by. I don't know if you've ever visited a prison, Rob, I'm not going to ask whether you've been in, ever inside a prison, but if you've <laughs> ever visited a prison, you know, they are really awful, hopeless places. Too many people go there by far. You know, they are awful places. And the idea of making them more constructive places and hopefully over the long term, cutting recidivism, so fewer places to go. So, you know, at Justice, for example, he wanted to do kind of major things with the court system and with the, the with uh, the legal profession as well. He was much, much, much more emollient with groups like uh, judges and uh, barristers and the legal profession in general. When is it education with Cummings? That's when, in the public's mind, that partnership really is at its peak. Is yeah. this is Cummings bringing in disruptive? Not even, I don't even think necessarily people would see it as a, I mean, some people may say it's a negative, but just that style of government and that style of running a department and bringing in different ideas and shaking things up. To the outside, that can look difficult or disrespectful or kind of, you know, it's almost sort of deliberately provocative. What was it like on the inside? And what's Dominic Cummings like to work with? Um, well, it was quite, it was quite provocative. And, you know, it was quite disrespectful in, in some ways. There was one kind of slightly infamous Newsnight interview right at the end when uh, Michael was asked uh, something like, 
what do you say to teachers who complain that they're being worked hard? He answered something like, well, you need to work harder. Um, and wow. to a lot of classroom teachers, you know, both my sisters are teachers. My mother's a teacher, which made occasionally for some awkward family occasions. Um, uh, there was, uh, you know, let's not pretend um, that it was, um, that it didn't always go down well. But there was this sense of urgency, of, of the urgent mission to make schools better, to make exams better, to do things like create 500-odd brand new schools in places that needed them. And not just places that needed them because there are not enough desks, not enough desks, but places where underperformance has been ingrained for an awfully long time. And the success was patchy, no doubt about it. You know, it worked a lot better in London than it has done in places. And it built on success that was put in place earlier. I mean, you know, people associated with that education reform movement will identify Labour ministers like Andrew Adonis particularly as the, the people, you know, the John the Baptists of this type of thing, although God knows I shouldn't describe Michael as Christ. Uh, but, you know, as people who, who made really important the first city academies, etc., things like London Challenge. Uh, and so the performance has been patchy, the improvement has been patchy, but it, I would argue it's been quite significant. And I've got kids going through the system now. Uh, um, you know, one of my children is at a brand new school, badly needed brand new school, um, that uh, was created during that moment. Others have gone to those schools as well. So, uh, as to what Dominic's like to work with, um, he's great to work with, um, I find, um, I found, but I was kind of, you know, part of the team. I think he's much more difficult to work with if, if uh, you don't see him as part of your team or if you're not on his team. Um, he's extraordinarily good at building a team, building a loyal team and people who work for him, work with him, tend to like him and tend to be quite loyal to him. I mean, I share very few of his politics at all. I, you know, I voted Remain, uh, extremely communitaire, someone who really did believe in the EU. Um, but even, you know, I managed to put aside uh, the fact that, you know, that that was all being crushed by his spectacular success, because I think he's got interesting things to say. He doesn't always say them in the right way, perhaps. He doesn't do his own PR a great deal of good. You know, he's an example of why one of his, the sayings in this business is that, you know, never do your own PR. And he needs an editor. God, he needs an editor. Um, uh, but he's a genuinely interesting person uh, with some genuinely interesting ideas. And unfortunately, a lot of the noise around him obscures that fact. And what's he like interpersonally? He's smart. He's genuinely smart. One of the things that um, I respect about him um, is that he will argue and engage with you. And if you bring evidence to an argument, if you know your stuff, he will defer to you. You know, uh, and that's quite an attractive trait in, in, in an advisor in, a, in, in whatever. He... Um, 
he's intellectually self-confident enough to be engaged with. Um, and I think that's where occasionally in his dealings with civil servants, they went wrong. I think the people who, who, who worked with him successfully, and this goes for you know, lots of things, uh, are the people who, I'm thinking of very senior officials here, directors, general, etc., cetera, permanent secretaries, uh, are the people who had the self-confidence to argue with him. And, you know, he is, if you do that, that's a good way of handling it. He seems to like to be seen as different. I mean, is, is that an affectation or, or is he genuinely a bit different to your standard political advisor or civil servant? Yeah, he's very different. I mean, look, he's not a horny-handed son of toil or anything like that. You know, he comes from a prosperous background. He went to a private school. He went to Oxford, etc. You know, on all of those things, he's pretty cookie-cutter for Westminster advisors, spads, politicians in general, etc. Uh, but there aren't many people around who come from the Northeast. You don't hear many Northeast accents in SW1 at all. You don't hear many provincial accents, regional accents at all, in fact. Um, and he has, of course, a different backstory to people um, as well. I mean, I don't want to sound like this is just kind of unalloyed admiration for him. So, you know, there are there are things that he has done that I think mistakes. But, you know, he's sufficiently different and sufficiently intellectually self-confident to differentiate himself. And, you know, there aren't many people who have on their CV, not just winning the 2016 referenda, uh, but also being the, the, you know, developing strategy that then won the 2019 general election as well. That's a fairly serious couple of achievements. From the outside, it's clear that he's highly valued and was at some point by the current prime minister, by Michael Gove, by others. And that moment where he sits in the Rose Garden behind that table, you think, my God, it, it created the impression that the government was entirely beholden to him. So from an outsider, you think, well, are they kind of, is this misplaced loyalty on behalf of the Prime Minister? Or is this guy so good that the government absolutely definitely needs him? I mean, it, is he that good that the government should have uh, effectively overstretched in order to keep him? Um, well, I was in number 10 and I was sort of, you know, a few hundred... Uh, few yards away from that taking place that particular event um i don't know i don't know it's a really interesting um question but there's no doubt about it it's a cliche in westminster terms that when the advisor becomes a story they've got to go and he had become the story you know it was a tribute to the forbearance and the loyalty of the prime minister that he wasn't canned immediately around there so when all that's going on, so you, you stood in the garden during that press conference? No, I think I watched it on TV. Uh, you're in number you know, 10 at the time. In, you know, I mean, which is the way that these things are done. You want to see how it's going over on screen. So yes. you're going to get a misleading idea of it if you are kind of in the room. Um, so better to watch it on television, to be honest. And did he ask you for advice in the run up to it? I think that, yeah, there were quite a lot of people who he asked for advice. And what advice did uh, you give him? Tell the truth. And do you think he did? I think he did. I think he did. I mean, I have, um, 
you know, telling the truth in, in these situations is always the right thing to do. I mean, it's not as simple as that. But the great advantage about telling the truth is, you know, it's, it's the simplest way of doing things. Um, I've never bought the idea of the second trip and, and things like that at all. Um, and from what I know, all that was pretty seriously investigated. Um, but I certainly believe he told the truth. And there would have been bits, perhaps, where he could have spun, but he was determined to tell what he saw as the truth. So you find yourself working in Downing Street, having worked for Michael Gove and, and worked at a number of government departments and had, we should say, a phenomenal academic career with a, 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 a BA, an MA a, and a PhD in history and then worked in journalism, been a lecturer, done all sorts of wonderful things before getting here. But as a former Labour activist, to be <laughs> inside number 10, working for, of all people, Boris Johnson. I mean, I guess when you're working for Michael Gove, you've possibly shared some of that and, and dealt with that emotionally. But still, it must be odd to be walking through the front door of number 10 as an advisor to a Conservative Prime Minister. I won't pretend uh, it's, you know, people who knew me from those days didn't think it was a bit odd. <laughs> you know, people who remember People who remember me as Labour activists, friends, who are still Labour activists, still in the party, whatever. I won't pretend it was uh, not, not at all odd. Uh, but I kind of stopped being tribal about politics quite a long time ago. And past that, I was a political journalist. I was in the lobby. Um, and political journalists tend not particularly, well, political news reporters, I was a news reporter, not a columnist, not a pundit, uh, tend to be not particularly tribal people. Um, and so that knocked a lot of the tribalism out of it. But we have to remember what as well, what it was like in the early spring of last year. You know, the country, the world, but the country was facing the uh, biggest crisis it had faced since 1940, without a shadow of a doubt. And part of what I'd done when I was a historian was write about how during the Second World War, government collected information on domestic morale and what people were thinking and what people were talking about. Britain was by far the leader in, in this. Other countries did it as well. Germany did it, but people didn't tell the truth because they were scared that if they told the SD, the bits of the Nazi apparatus who were collecting morale reports, what they actually thought, they'd be sent to a concentration camp. Uh, uh, but the... No, the, the opportunity to help put in place something like that and work out what people thinking, what people wanted, how people were making sense to deal with this crisis was um, was humbling, really. Um, and the opportunity to do it was... Uh, um, uh, I was flattered to be asked, and if people thought I was going to be useful, I was going to help them. I fully understand it that. It wasn't tribal at all. It really was country. I mean, that sounds, you know, like I'm about to start singing I vow to be my country, but, uh, you know, you want to work on the big stuff. You want to work on the important stuff. I think people can fully understand now a moment of global crisis. People put aside whatever party political issues they may have to, to contribute their skills towards the public good. So, just before we come on to that fascinating story of being inside number 10 and doing the work you did at that time, 
What sort of Labour activist were you then, Gabriel? Were you a, a kind of Michael Foote? Were you Neil Kinnock? Were you a Blairite? Were you a Corbynista? When did you, you know, what era are we talking and, and how how radical were you? Um, well, I lied about my age to join the Labour Party. I think you had to be 15 at the time and I was yeah. 14. And I joined my local YS branch. And of course, because every single YS branch in the country was run by our good friends and the revolutionary socialist, aka the militant tendency, um, at that time, I, you know, found myself drawn into those circles. So I have a, a secret trot past. Uh, um, um, but you know, I subsequently became quite a quite a neocon, and loads of neocons were Trotskyites. You look at Irving Crystal, people like that in New York, Irving Howe, etc. You know, you can't be a proper neocon unless you were a Trot at some stage. But then, um, but then, I suppose. Um, you know, at university, for example, I was a Nolsey uh, for those of this tradition. You know, I was chair of my university labour club. But, you know, the, we were the people who were derided as filthy careerists uh, who wanted uh, to get Labour governments elected, which an eccentric, an eccentric desire for many people in the Labour Party in those days and still today. So then did you stop being a member of the Labour Party? Yeah, I stopped it, um, uh, and um, there were lots of reasons for that, kind of drifting away from politics. Um, and um, the 92 election hit me quite hard as well. I mean, I'd invested a lot of hope, a lot of, quite a lot of activism in the Labour Party, uh, time and things like that. So that kind of hit me quite hard, and I sort of, you know, people, people move away from those things. Fully identify with that, absolutely. I'm sure many listeners of this show can. So actually, you checked out before Blairism. And then kind of checked back in a bit. Um, and uh, I think, you know, there are... There's a John Rental quote, which uh, I kind of find myself thinking about quite a lot, that he admired Tony Blair after his premiership more than he did during his premiership, and I sort of admire that to a degree. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. That's um, a Joni Mitchell quote, isn't it? That's, a, that's yeah, that's, that's, that's not John Rent. Uh, equally talented, better sing. Because I wonder, you know, I, I remember when Labour came in in 97 and a lot of the cabinet ministers at the time were joking about um, whether there were files in the Home Office on them because so many of them had been trots you know hard lefties was your trot past ever raised you know when you're appointed a special advisor to the prime minister they must do checks did they ever say oh hang on a second are you a are you going to foment revolution from within gabriel no and i'm sure it wouldn't i mean there are you know there are trotskyites all over the civil service former trotskyites all over the civil service and, the, and you know the labor party um and you know all uh no no and it wasn't you know serious dabbling in it you know I wasn't a full-time militant cadre put it that way uh but no I mean other stuff come kind of comes up and you get asked about other stuff um as well which I can't go into uh, when you're kind of going through the security checks and also I already uh when you're going through the security checks that's necessary in lots of government roles um but no that never came up at all I don't think it would do either and there's some of those I mean obviously you can't tell us uh, as you say, but the other stuff that comes up, is it stuff you wouldn't expect? 
I never had the full what's known as DV develop vetting. Never went through that. People, but people who and people are not supposed to talk about the questions that you're asked, but they ask all kinds of things, all kinds of things, very personal stuff. Uh, uh, which uh, I'm glad about, frankly. You know, um, we we need to make sure that you know our government is 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 secure. But it, it used to be the case. For example, when I got my first pass at Westminster. Uh, which would have been about 2005, 2006, passed the House of Commons and had to do security check, SC, which is one of the lower tiers of, uh, of betting, whatever. You know, it was so, you know, you haven't got anyone who's born in Ireland, have you? Because it, in those days, it was still the case that if you, uh, if you had that, but I think it had moved on then to the kind of post 9-11 world, which the security services were much more interested in than, you know, the dreary steeples of the manor or whatever. And would the Prime Minister ever joke about your left-wing past? You know, you Gabriel Millinder, a former Trotskyite. With the... No, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think he would have ever been aware of it, for example. <laughs> um, so, you find yourself... I'm using this as confession time. Oh, God, well, this is great. That's what this show is all about, <laughs> to make uh, the guests feel better. Um so you you you're brought in to be a special advisor to the prime minister because at the time you are a uh, director a partner sorry of yeah. um of uh, public first yeah and now that uh you sort of being brought in in that way some people said oh well this is just makes of dominic cummings getting government contracts well i don't really it's the uh, the documentation. All I'm going to say is, you know, what's been said before is uh, we were hired. Public First was hired because it was really good at its job. Uh, we produce quality work along with another agency called Britain Thinks, who are very good in this world. It's well well known in this world, uh, and uh, there is no suggestion whatsoever that any of the work that we did was not of the highest quality uh, as well. I'm very proud of the work I did uh, at that time. It's uh, It was a, a privilege. Uh, started off just doing a couple of groups and then it kind of spiraled, a couple of focus groups, and, and then it spiraled into creating what I talked about, which was effectively a kind of huge domestic morale monitoring uh, system with a lot of quant, which, you know, which is our jargon. Uh, my my job now is I, I run the research strategy part of, of Portland. A lot of quant, which is kind of conventional polling, opinion polling, of the you know of the sort that lots of people do, and a lot of qual, which is short for qualitative, which is things particularly in this context, um, focus groups, um, and the one of the ways that I explain the difference is that you know, quant will tell you, polling will tell you what people are say they think on a particular day, but the qual will say why they think it and what it might take to change their mind and what they're worried about and can take off in all kinds of unexpected directions. Um, and is is quicker in the right context um, as well. This is what's so fascinating about polling and, and understanding 
what the public think at any one time and why they think it. So what, do, I mean, I've had Deborah Mattinson on the show a couple of times from Britain Thinks and she's absolutely superb. So what sets companies like Britain Thinks and, and Public First aside from, from others? What, what does Public First do so well? Is it that you ask different questions? Is it that you interpret the answers better? I think what, what good, uh, what good researchers do, and I'd include Portland where I work now, along with that is you are, you know, it's, it's about asking better questions. It's about analyzing the data if you're doing polling in the best way possible. Um, but when it comes to focus groups, it's about being the best listener that you can possibly be. Um, and understanding the people who you're talking to, respecting what they say, taking them seriously. Because in my view, there's always been two sorts of people in politics and two sorts of people in research, but particularly in political research, those who see the public as they want them to be, and those who see the public as they actually are, um, and who are not trying to remake the public and who respect ordinary people and respect their views um, as well. I think that's absolutely key for a good qual researcher. It's listening, respect. That sounds perhaps a little bit vague and there are all kinds of professional and methodological and you know different things that good people do. But when it comes down to it, it's about being the best listener that you possibly can be. And when you're brought in, in this role, was it clear that it was only for the time that you spent there, or was it like a sort of rolling contract? And was your remit really clear? Did they say, we want you to run these focus groups and, and build up this sort of morale monitor, or, or did uh, effectively the brief evolve? Um, it was it, it was both, but you know, if you, the crisis developed in unexpected ways. And uh, so I continued having a hand in quite a bit of the polling, a lot of focus group work. Um, but I also did some interesting stuff. I mean, there was a shortage of capacity in all areas across government, for example. So I found myself working particularly closely on things like the daily press conferences and, and working pretty closely with the chief scientific um, um, advisor as well, with Patrick Valance, who's a fascinating guy. Um, and what those two went through, what Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty went through and are still going through, I'm sure. I haven't spoken to them since I left number 10. But, uh, you know, there was an awful lot that has not reached the public ear, and I'm not, um, I'm not going to say it, but they were under huge, huge amounts of pressure, enormous amounts of pressure to do the right thing. And do you and, mean pressure that they were putting on themselves or pressure that was coming from elsewhere? pressure that was coming from elsewhere coming but also you know they are i mean chris Whitty did some really quite heroic things you know a measure of a man is that um he uh, you know this is has been written about people know this but he you know he had a bit of time off from number 10 uh, a couple of days or something like that and he, he went and worked on the wards at uch <laughs> um uh, as a physician, as a consultant, um, you know these people are 
deeply committed public servants. Um, and in the case of, of, of Patrick, you know, you have people who are kind of catapulted into the public eye, who only a tiny number of people will have known about outside specialist service beforehand, who find themselves coming under all sorts of pressure. And there isn't necessarily the kind of support network to explain. These people are not experienced. At, and it's very often the case when I've worked with clients in similar sorts of crisis, high profile situations, that the depth and the level of media scrutiny really surprises people. And they find it very hard to deal with. You know, politicians have built up some scar tissue. They're used to this a bit, but people who, someone like Patrick, who's you know, had an extremely successful career in science, farming, pharmaceuticals, for example, have never been, you know, they might've been mentioned in the papers a few times, but you know, they haven't had people taking pictures of their front garden before flogging them to newspapers and saying stuff about them. Um, so uh, it was, you know, there was quite a bit of supporting, supporting people like Patrick with that kind of activity as well. So I guess it's not just about helping him deliver a live press conference and, and how to field questions from journalists. It's also this other side, which is the intrusion into their lives. I mean, I didn't even think about that. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to betray um, any kind of details, but there, there was, you know, a fair bit of intrusion. I don't blame the media for this. This was not established organs doing this at all. It's not, you know, established titles that everyone knows of doing this. It was, uh, it was others. Um, but there was a bit of intrusion. You know, I've spent as well how long, five, six years um, as uh, quite a higher ranking media relations bod in, in um, and communications guy in, in wild civil servant. Um, so I also understood how to, well, try to anyway, put in structures that supported them and bring in good people who would work with them as well, and take the strain off them, um, essentially. You know, that was the mission in many ways, because these guys were under huge amounts of strain, particularly Patrick, who I worked with much more closely than Chris. And is the strain coming, is that just, uh, is that external? Is that is that just from the public gaze or is that from the executive? I, it's coming from everywhere as well, but it's also, um, I'm sure it's coming from two men and there are people like this all across. Whitehall, whose names, you know, will never come out as well, but, you know, public servants who have been under astonishing pressure for the last 18 months, astonishing pressure. Um, and they do it because they're public servants and they do it because it's the right thing and they do it because they feel they're making a contribution. I mean, this sounds, you know, this sounds, made, you know, I don't want this to sound kind of naive or wishy-washy or whatever word that you want to do it, but these people are, and there are people like this in hospitals and there are people like this in children's services departments and there are people like this in the police and all parts of public service who have been bloody heroes throughout this. And, and, and that, it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's quite wonderful to be part of something. So, you know, like that. And uh, there is still a public service ethos in, civil service and in, in Whitehall and 
and in, and in all parts of the public service. I mean, they both, just thinking of Patrick Vance and Chris Whitty, were superb communicators from day one. I mean, whatever pressure they were under, certainly during the televised conferences and things, you could tell that this was obviously a new situation. Everyone's reacting to that. But they were always so calm and measured and thoughtful. I mean, they always came across so well. So in a way, I guess you're you're dealing with people who actually had the raw materials in terms of the sk communication skills. They may not have perhaps consider themselves to be great communicators or, or have the skills that politicians have. But they were two hugely reassuring figures for the public. Yeah, and from in terms of what the public wanted, um, you know, they just did it natural. They didn't enjoy it at all. They really did not enjoy it at all. They did not relish it at all. And, they, you know, we had to be careful about not overusing them. And also because it takes time to do these things. You don't just turn up mm. and do it, although some cabinet ministers sometimes did that. Um, Which ones? Matt Hancock. I mean, partly because Matt was um, um, uh, particularly on top of the brief. He knew the numbers, etc. because Secretary of State for health and social care he should do but also because matt is a you know quite a skillful media person but the um the what the public wanted right from the get-go from the very uh, very earliest research i was doing in february last year who do you want to hear from who do you want to tell you about this experts experts you know, the public wanted to know the science. The public wanted to know the, um, and I'm sure that hasn't changed. The public wanted just unalloyed facts. And they were really suspicious of the media as well. I remember one particular focus group where it talked a bit about the media. It's what do you want from the media? How do you think the media is doing it? And very early on in the pandemic, people were, were convinced, a very large number of people, people were convinced that it was media hype. You know, I'd ask a question, how worried are you about this new thing that's coming out where, you know, it's come, you know, we're starting to see some horrible pictures from Italy, etc. You know, we're starting to see the first infections in this country, etc. as it developed. You know, how worried are you about this on a scale of one to ten? You know, three, two, you know, it's just a load of hype. You know, they want to sell papers, etc. But what, what the public wanted is they wanted unalloyed facts. So sometimes you'd ask people, you know, what do you think, how do you think the media should do this? Or what do you want from the media? Or how do you think the media is covering it? Or what are you reading about in the papers? And they would say, just close the, you know, I'm a former media guy. I love the media. I consume an awful lot of media. I like journalists uh, a great deal. But you talk to the public at that point, as the pandemic really started to build, and they wanted the media closed down. They just wanted like, you know, there were people who would say, a sizable number of people who would say, just close the media down. We just want one website with the facts, just telling us what the facts are. So obviously one couldn't do that. One would never do that. The media have played an important role. I mean, there's fantastic journalism been done, particularly by health correspondents, science correspondents, data correspondents, you know, Tom Whipple at the Times, Hugh Pym at the BBC, uh, the, the BBC's medical correspondent, whose name escapes me at the moment, but you know, done some awesome reporting um, on this. You know, some lobby journalist, Jane Merrick, for example, at the I, done it very straight. Uh, but the, the 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 public wanted to hear from people like Patrick and Chris right from the get go.
They also, however, because the public are usually deeply wise about these things and understand these things, they also understood as well that when it came down to it, when it came down to the difficult decisions, although the scientists and the science would inform those decisions, in the end, they were decisions that a prime minister or an, you know, a prime minister would want to make. Um, so they wanted to hear from the prime minister as well. They didn't particularly want to hear from Boris um, as the kind of the figure that they had of him and their imagination. Who, generally speaking, they are you know a lot of people are pretty warm to. They wanted they understood that they needed to hear as well from the prime minister um, as well, and that that office had a would have to make a lot of difficult decisions and was making a lot of difficult decisions and still does, of course. What were the initial, if there were any, tensions between the Prime Minister, uh, you know, Patrick Vance and Chris Whitty? Did Boris immediately say, well, this is great, we, we have to have these two guys at all times, or, or did he, was he like, I'm, I'm the Prime Minister, I'm going to do this on my own, I, I don't need these two chaps either side of me. No, um, at all. I mean, what, you know, because the prime minister, this prime minister, understands communications and was reading the reports that were going in from me and others, as I understand it. He understood that that's where the public was, um, and that was the advice he was getting from people around him, the people who he was listening to, including people like you know, direct communications, Lee Kane, other special advisors as well. Uh, so he understood. Uh, that being flanked by them at major set-piece moments was and still is important. And when he got COVID, I mean, obviously in the run-up to that, people were saying, the podiums aren't two metres apart. Now, this guy's telling us to, to keep our distance and these guys aren't keeping a distance from each other. W were they conversations you were having at the time? Yeah. Um, they, and we, you know, as ever there was quite strenuous efforts put into ensuring that those who were giving the guidance were observing the guidance as well. Number 10 is a difficult place to socially distance, however. Mm. Um, you've worked there, I think, haven't you? Or, or you so I've, I've been there a few times. I never worked there, but uh, I, I yeah, went there when um, I was a Labour member of staff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tight. Um, it, it's tight. It's antiquated. Um, in many sorts of ways. I mean, it's always a bit of a shock when people go in for the first time and find that their local councils, municipal offices are vastly more impressive than, you know, the nerve centre of the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, yeah. somewhere that has nuclear weapons at its disposal. And basically, it's really shabby um, and cramped and a rabbit warren um, and outdated, to be honest, as well, and could be massively improved. Um, so... I think people gradually went down with it, and I went down with it myself as well. Uh, I got infected and had to disappear for the statutory amount of time that people needed to um, socially distance uh, or, you know, quarantine themselves, self-isolate. Um, uh, so people were aware that it was working its way through uh, number 10, um, inexorably, uh, really. And this is obviously um, before the vaccine. Yeah, 
So, I mean, you know, still worrying enough now as someone who's double jabbed if I got it. I mean, you had zero protection and it's tearing no. through the building. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this goes, you know, um, there's been a lot of work on how people work together in stressful situations and what are the motivators that motivate people to keep going in stressful situations. You know, lots of psychology on it, research and things like that. Um, and people get going because they thought they were doing important work and useful work. Um, um, but they also get going because the, the key motivator in these settings in these circumstances in my view is loyalty to your comrades and not wanting to let your comrades down so even though we've all got better at working from home all got better at working remotely um there was a sense that people needed to keep going and not self you know self-isolate when you were infected but keep going in the meantime but people must have been scared of getting it and dying Um, I wasn't personally, even though, uh, in the immortal words of the Prime Minister, I was a fatty in my 50s at the time. Um, don't be a fatty in your 50s, um, as he said when he, after he got it. Uh, I subsequently fixed one of those things. I was still in my 50s, but I'm less fat than I was. Um... I don't recall being, I can't speak for others, but I can't recall being, you know, um, there's a lot of adrenaline in these circumstances and that keeps you going. Because people less sympathetic perhaps to the Prime Minister or to the way the operation was run might say, these guys never took it seriously. They were so cavalier about it. They're going on wards, shaking hands. Everyone's still going into number 10. You know, you took huge risks with your personal safety and, and you know, with Boris Johnson, people for a period, I don't know if it ever came through in the polling, might have thought, hang on, this guy's putting other people at risk with his behaviour. Well, might... well, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, the handshaking thing that the Prime Minister did was early on. Uh, it was, you know, early, uh, uh, etc. I wasn't around at the time. I can't remember the precise details um, of it. Um, there were, you know, quite a lot of steps. So, you know, the key meeting had been uh, the 8.15 uh, I think it was meeting where the cabinet sat around the big table in the cabinet room. You had officials and advisors sat in a kind of concentric circle around that, you know, along the cabinet room. That went to virtual, or only only a very small number of people attended. So I didn't attend in person anymore, having been there um, to start with. Uh, so there were some measures put in place, but number ten is a really difficult place to do that. Um, and um, we've all subsequently learned more and more. I, I've got no idea. Remember, I, I left number 10 at the uh, end of June, early July last year, so I have no inside uh, knowledge of, you know, work arrangements either. But we have all of, all of us got much wiser about hands, face, space subsequently. Um, and that's one of the ways in which things have changed. Before I forget, just on Matt Hancock, because you talked about him being really on top of his brief and being able to basically just walk into a press conference and do it. Some people might be 
less charitable about him. He obviously has his critics. He has probably more critics now than he's ever had. Um, he always struck me as, as someone who looked like he was mildly panicking. Maybe that's just his face. You know, like Jack D just always looked grumpy even when he wasn't. Yeah. Um, so as, a, as, a, as someone who is effectively a sort of media spad, who, who always thinking about communications and, and how to put a case across, you rated Matt Hancock as a communicator. Um, yeah, I think so in some ways. Um, uh, he was pretty assured. You know, he knew his stuff. He knew the data. He knew, and that's the key thing. You absolutely needed to know your stuff. So a lot of cabinet ministers, there'd be prep sessions before the daily press conference. Um, and, you know, some of them wanted really quite some, very substantial amounts of preparation time, you know, an hour or something like that. Huge amounts of time. How many hours? Um, some of them, or oh, an hour, probably. Yeah. Some of them wanted to leave an hour in number 10 um, in one of the rooms upstairs beforehand. Um, some of them, no names, no pack drill on this, uh, started to treat it a little bit like party conference as well. This was their time in the sun. This was their time to uh, to announce something significant around their departments. Of course, one of the big drawbacks was uh, there weren't enough women at all. Um, um, and that was a bit of a scandal, to be honest. Um, more women should probably have been put up. But that was a real... Uh, I, you know, not privy to discussions about why that didn't take place. Um, and, um, but I think the public started to notice that, and uh, it made things look odd, frankly. And did that come through in the focus groups and the work you were doing? Yeah, with some women. Some women noticed that. Um, we don't hear from women. We, we, I want to hear from a mum. People say things like that. You know, people re people actually do say, look, so-and-so kind of understands that, and I feel I can relate to her a little bit because she's a mum or something, you know, without getting all Andrea Ledson about this. Andrea Ledson about this, you know, there are, there are, and I'm not suggesting that anyone should um, kind of do kind of as a mother type stuff as, as she did, but, um, uh, but I think that was an area where uh, that was one of the many, many weaknesses uh, that emerged um, as well um, and um, one of the lessons that has been learned I think is going to change Just on the Prime Minister getting Covid, I mean that was such a shocking moment, it's easy to forget actually that at the time I think the whole country was genuinely scared that the Prime Minister was going to die, I mean and, and you know the consequences of that for for his family, for his for the government, for almost for the nation, you're like, oh my god! And as you say, you know, because of his age, because of his health, it felt like a, a, that was a genuine fear. I mean, what was it like inside Downing Street at that time? Well, I wasn't actually in downside Downing Street because I was self isolating myself, um, and for all sorts of reasons that probably people can guess. Information about the prime minister's health. Uh, is kept pretty closely. And so I was outside the building. So I didn't actually know that things had taken a turn for the worse. And it came as a shock to me that, that night when he was, you know, 
taken over the river to St. Thomas's. It came as a big shock. And I think it came to a, lot, a shock to a lot of people. Um, you know, I don't for a moment think that people look to Boris Johnson as the father of the nation and there was all kinds of North Korean type stuff. But I think the British people are a warm, generous and good set of people. And they don't like the idea of personal suffering in, for anybody. And I think that was how probably, although I wasn't, you know, speaking to people at the time, I was self-isolating, you know, uh, that was how it would have gone over to them. So they, I think that, you know, that kind of concern was, was quite common. And what was he like when he came back? He was um, noticeably, you know, noticeably, uh, he'd been in the wars. Um, as, you know, anyone who has had a bad case of COVID, you know, it takes it out of you. He got back up to speed pretty quickly, but it was noticeable. And what was Dominic Raab like as a stand-in Prime Minister? Well, I remember um, a uh, my civil service manager, who was a very courtly civil servant of the old school, who had repeatedly had to stand in as permanent secretary of the Department for Education, telling people on yet another occasion when he was asked to stand in as permanent secretary, I shall be acting permanent secretary, not pretend permanent secretary. And um, uh, Dominic Raab handled it pretty well. Um, I worked for him in a few places. I worked for him in the Ministry of Justice. And look, you know, he is a hard taskmaster. He drives people quite hard. He, he can be, you know, he's personally, I, I often found him quite warm, but he, he can be, he, you know, he can drive people quite hard, but he was, um, he was very much primus inter pares. You know, he was, he was pretty collegiate as uh, the way that he ran meetings of the quad, for example. Um, I think he did a pretty good job. And would others agree? How did his colleagues find him, do you think? They will have their own views. I mean, I can just say what, how I interpreted it. But uh, he, uh, he was pretty collegiate and he was consensual as well. And he listened to other members of the quad really hard, very hard indeed. I'm just thinking about the work you're doing with the public. At the start, you say people think it's media hype. At what point does that change? And, and that trajectory of public opinion must have been fascinating to follow. It was, it was fascinating and, and really quite terrifying um, as well. Because I remember the first focus group I did was in an anonymous conference room of a hotel in Crawley, sort of place where I like going and doing groups like this. Why? Why do you uh, like going to those sorts of places? Because they're representative of where most people in this country live. You know, I can get into the kind of the technicalities of it, but it's the C1s, C2s, it's the people earning 35,000, 40, maybe a bit more in Crawley, which is a bit more prosperous than the Southeast. People earning between 30, 35,000 pounds a year with a five-year-old Nissan Qashqai on the driveway. Uh, Barrett Home, Britain, it's the excellence of pain, it's called it. Uh, but that's the kind of, popular centre of gravity of, of where we are as a country. 
uh, better off than the kind of the the cliche of um, of, of 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 views. Um, the uh, so that's why I like kind of places like that and places like Warrington and uh, uh, Washington in China Weir and you know oh places like so it started off you know there were the very first kind of rumblings of worry. And so there was a woman in that particular focus group whose husband had been due to travel to Italy for a work thing and that had been cancelled. And then it was the pictures from Italy that really started to um, to persuade people that this was actually a real thing, something that they sh should sit up and take notice of. And then it was, I remember towards the end, or as we got closer to the first lockdown, uh, then it was couple running a bed and breakfast in the Mumbles in Swansea. Um, and that group was done by video. By that point, we'd switched to doing them by video, which is an okay way of doing them. Uh, it's, they can be done. It's probably not as good as being in the room. Uh, who had just seen every single booking that they had nuked and were staring at the total collapse of their livelihood and business that they'd spent years building. Um, that transition from kind of a distant worry to something that was starting to really impact people's lives was quite rapid but gradual and built over the space of two to three weeks um, and in late February, early March middle of March um, and that was Really quite terrifying. So I was I was hearing around the country. I'd be doing you know groups in Leeds one night and groups in Bristol the next morning, things like that. Uh, but it was it was a lot of what I was doing was testing the communications. You know, not just who do you want to hear about, but does this radio advert make sense to you? Does this poster that's going to go up everywhere make sense to you? Can you read it? Can you do you understand what it means? Do these words make sense to you? So an awful lot of work like that. In the in the jargon of the business, testing stim. So stuff like hands, face, space, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. These yeah. are all phrases. So were there alternative versions of those that you tried that weren't used? I mean, yeah, lots of them. I can't remember. I mean, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives was genius in its simplicity. And as soon as I can't remember the life of me who the person who came up with that, but as soon as it was kind of presented to us in number 10 is we think this is the way that we should go you know this is the way in which the branding should change and the colors should change and everything like that it was as if um we had kind of stumbled on something really important because we knew it would work just instinct told you it would work but there were lots of things you know which color scheme should we use so that you know i'd be testing things with people um and they say look i really love the the fluorescent yucky almost kind of fluorescent vomit green of the posters because it's a revolting color and it grabs my attention and it symbolizes something to me that is unpleasant. So that color was used as part of the, the palette, the brand palette um, a lot and still is. There's still those posters around last year. The wording then changed to stay alert and yeah. that at the time, 
got a lot of negative coverage. But obviously, if you're telling people that they don't have to stay at home, you do have to change the wording because the advice is changing. I mean, how much thought went into that? I mean, I imagine a lot. And were you were you perhaps slightly surprised at the negativity that that changed? Well, the point of government communications usually in this sort of setting is to change behaviour. And the view of the government at that time was we are coming out of that phase of the pandemic uh, as we were last summer when case numbers were a bit lower even than they are now. Um, and um, the, uh, there was a need to try and get life going again. Um, also as well, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that uh, hasn't, there wasn't the, the, the psychologists who were being employed, the behavior change people, people you know, um, in, in government, the behavior advisors, a lot of them academics, a lot of them from consultancies. One of the things that they missed totally, and I kicked myself regularly for, as someone who was a kind of social historian of World War II, was something called deep shelter mentality, which had been worried about uh, in the late 1930s and was a worry of the government in the, in, at the time of the Blitz, that people would go into the deep shelter and they'd never come out at all. Um, this was not something that we thought too much about, but the, the, the application to the pandemic was, and the reason why stay alert was necessary, was we wanted to kind of coax people out of the shelter. And a lot of people are still in the shelter. A lot of people are still worried about resuming normal life. So the, the enthusiasm with which people embraced lockdown and didn't want it to end, many of them, was a bit of a surprise and a failure to anticipate, I think. So that's why Stay Alert, you know, and the rest of that was necessary because it was necessary to draw people out. I found it very funny when, you know, I, I looked at the French papers and I think Macron's slogan at the same time was Restez Alert, uh, you know. <laughs> so, you know, they were doing the same thing. Um, so, um, there was a need to do it. There was an immediate, um, comparison with Scotland where yeah. Nicola Sturgeon said that stay alert was, was too vague and then went for stay safe, which is either just as vague or uh, arguably vaguer. Well, there was, there was, you know, there was a pattern, um, that predicted that, that went throughout the, uh, the pandemic where basically the Scottish government would be told what the UK government was going to announce, would announce it about half an hour before the UK government did, would just kind of and stick it in a kilt, as we used to refer to it when I was uh, a newspaper journalist, that a, a story would be kind of Scottishified. You know, she, she did that, and it, it worked for her quite a lot. It worked pretty well for her. But it was the same imperative in terms of behaviour change. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
we're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So when you say that um, the Scottish government, the SNP, would stick a kilt on stuff, does that mean that they would effectively do the same thing and but just brand it up, which is kind of fair in a way, or would they um, try and scupper what you were doing? I don't think they tried to scupper it. I think that would be uh, grossly unfair on Nicola Sturgeon, who, just like the government in London, was doing what she thought was best for the people who she rep- represented. But, uh, you know, there is a degree of politics involved in any government. Um, and, uh, uh, you, you know, I, I hesitate to reach for specifics, but very often uh, what would happen is she would be made privy uh, to what the UK government was about to announce. And then it would be kind of tweaked just enough to make it Scottish. And obviously, uh, you know what Nicola Sturgeon was about was about protect. You know, it is about is about protecting the people of Scotland. I don't think for a moment that uh, she uh, uh, had any interest in that. But alongside that, obviously, there was an opportunity to you know to differentiate Scotland from the rest of the UK and from England in particular. And do you think they took that? I mean, do you think they could have done more? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I think about that. And uh, I think, you know, there has been some criticism around and I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the union. I'm not an expert on Scotland um, at all. I've done some focus groups in Scotland or listened into quite a lot of focus groups in Scotland on, on, on the national question. But I'm no kind of expert whatsoever. But there has been some criticism and I don't know how valid it is that perhaps London missed a trick by ceding so much authority to the Scottish government. And I I don't know what I think about that at all. I'm no expert, as I said. Well, it's one of those, when you war game those scenarios, they are both fraught with um, different risks. Because if you're, the danger is with London, with Boris or whoever, you know, whatever the shorthand is at the time, uh, isn't seen to trust the people of Scotland or their elected masters, yeah. that yeah. is also fraught with danger. And, and, and that, that, is, uh, that is tricky as well. I mean, obviously you had it, it, on the island of Britain, a Welsh administration, in a Labour administration in Wales, the SNP in Scotland and, and the Conservatives yeah. running things in England. I mean, I, I don't know how much you saw or how much you picked up around the office, but did it feel that despite the fact you had three different parties running each of the three constituent um, nations of, of the island of Britain, that... Um, Things work pretty well between them. Look on the big stuff, probably yes. Uh, would if Mark Drayford was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, would he have run things differently? Yes. Uh, you know, he's although sometimes it looks like 
he's uh, the plied uh, first minister uh, uh, or premier. Uh, that uh, that uh, that, but he is a member of the Labour Party. Um, would he have done things differently? Yeah, if, if Sturgeon, you know, if we if it had been, you know, like James II and you know the, the Scottish rulers had moved south of the border and taken over the, the whole of the UK or the whole of Great Britain, uh, would things have been different? And differently? Yeah, um, I'm sure they would have. There are so many decisions in this. Look, you know, if I want to kind of get over one thing from that time, from my experience, it is, you know, something about the fog of war, something about enormous number of decisions having to be taken um, under unprecedented scrutiny with unprecedented jeopardy. I mean, you know, one of the first things that happened in number 10 is I was sat down by somebody you know, and, and kind of warned that we, at that point, there was a good reason to expect that 350,000 people would die. Uh, so, that, you know, it's a serious situation, a very serious situation, obviously. Um, and in these situations, lots of stuff goes wrong and there is lots of confusion and the fog of war, as you know, it was a US Secretary of State who coined that phrase, wasn't it? You know, and there's that great documentary about Vietnam and you know and things. And uh, inevitably, stuff went wrong. Bum decisions were made. That happens a lot in these circumstances. I, I've always thought, and now I kind of know. I mean, that can happen with with the most uh, talented, dedicated leaders. Just thinking of Boris Johnson and his leadership style, you know, there is a perception that he's almost um, doesn't have an eye for detail, isn't bothered. Was that your um, impression of him when, when you were inside number 10? No, no. Um, I mean, you can get too much into the detail, and I'm not suggesting that he got too much into the detail. But that job, and you need to be across the detail, and he was across the detail, and... So, for example, before he got ill, there were, you know, daily deep dives into particular issues, uh, you know, be it ventilator capacity, be it BPE, etc. And he was fully across the detail then, there's no doubt about it, you know. One of the worst things that you can do in politics, of course, is underestimate your opponent. And there are too many people, the bodies of, you know, the graveyards of SW1 and other bits of, you know, are full of the bodies of people who underestimated Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, and they're currently doing it to Nadine Doris as well. You know, don't underestimate these people. They're smart. They wouldn't be where they were if they weren't. With that in mind, what was the public perception then? Because you're running these focus groups, and there clearly seems to be, to me, and, and I'm inferring from what you've just said, that you think it as well, that when predominantly the Labour Party attacks these people. Actually, those attacks don't resonate with the public. The, the way that Labour describes the Conservatives, the way that Labour focuses on mistakes that were made, doesn't necessarily cut through, doesn't resonate with the public perception of Boris Johnson or Nadine Dorries or the way the Tories handled the pandemic. So what did the public make of Boris Johnson's leadership during that time? Well, it changed, of course. Um... And I think the fundamental attitude was there was undoubtedly a rally to the flag, you know, which there is in all moments of national crisis. And you've seen this in most territories. 
But the public attitude, even among those people who didn't vote for him, is he's not the prime minister. He's not necessarily the prime minister that we chose, uh, but he's the prime minister that we've got. Well, this is the attitude amongst people who didn't vote for him. He's not necessarily a prime minister who we chose, but he's the prime minister who we've got and we're going to support him. You know, just like if, you know, if you support a very mediocre championship football team, something that we have in common, uh, you kind of support your manager. I wish we were mediocre. (laughs) Certainly we're terrible. (laughs) Uh, The jury's out on that for for my club as well. But so there is a, um, there is an instinctive rally to the flag uh, element of support. There was also some kind of, oh, the poor sod as well. Uh, you know, he did what he was said he would do. He got Brexit done, which is, don't underestimate that as well. It's just a huge thing, a huge thing amongst the 52% of the people who did vote for Leave. Uh, and he won an election. And now he's got this to deal with. So perhaps we ought to cut him a bit of slack. So there's that. But there's the fundamental attitude, which I think has come out time and time again. And in all the focus groups I've done since then, I haven't been in the field for a little while, so I don't know how uh, prevalent it is currently. Uh, but the, the fundamental attitude I liken to when your boiler has broken. And it's the middle of the winter and you're freezing cold and you need it fixed. What you want is you want a central heating engineer or a plumber to come around ASAP and fix it. What you don't want is a barrister who is going to come around and threaten to sue the manufacturers of the boiler and kind of point out, you know, in, in crisis situations, the public, very large portion of it, gets that actually finger pointing is not terribly constructive and what they want to happen is for things to be fixed as quickly as possible. Um, and so that has got in the way for Starmer. There's no doubt about it. And my view personally, as someone who didn't vote Labour at the last election, certainly, um so you know take this with a, a grain of salt pinch of salt and you know but this is candid advice uh hopefully was that what he should have done is basically use the last period to clean house in the labor party to put it on an even footing get rid of some of the cranks who have flocked there since 2015 particularly on anti-semitism um, and then reformulate what it what the Labour Party is for and, and what it means and build towards an election which is probably not 18 months away, but is not, you know, is not far off. So that has been a real difficulty for just getting a hearing, you know, has been really difficult for him because the public have not been at all interested in partisan politics for most of the last 18, 19 months at all. What they wanted is they wanted the situation to be fixed. And then starting from January this year what happened was that things started to be fixed and the vaccine rollout was a triumph. Um, Despite everyone's expectations, uh, you know, it was done extraordinarily well and tens of thousands of lives were saved um, and may continue to be saved. Um, Not, not, you know, simply by the, the incredibly nimble way in which, for example, the AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccination was developed um, with support from the UK government and from obviously from the intellectual heavyweight of lifting of of uh, Oxford University and you know AstraZeneca's 
manufacturing capability, so and sheer de delivery capability. Um, so um, the Prime Minister has undoubtedly been, you know, kind of riding that, getting the benefit from that this year. We've seen in the last week or so one poll suggesting a Labour hour ahead, which came after the social care episode, which is interesting in itself. But that looks like what, you know, I've got the greatest of respect for you, Gut, but that looks like that might be a particular blip. And, you know, look at the, look at the trend. Don't look at single polls, look at the trend. Um, so uh, the Prime Minister is in a pretty good place, I think. For a midterm Prime Minister, he's in a pretty good place. And, you know, through doing focus groups, just what I realised, I just realised. Now, I didn't necessarily buy the Boris idea to uh, until I actually started kind of doing some research um, around it. But I remember doing one focus group in Walsall, uh, I think it was during the local elections a couple of years ago. And Boris had been to, on a visit nearby to Blockswitch. If anyone's from the, I do a lot of focus groups in the black country. If anyone's from that part of the world or know that part of the world, uh, they'll know that Blockswitch is a pretty rough bit of the black country. Uh, Blocko. Uh, somewhere that people, you know, somewhere, people in, in Wolverhampton, I remember when I was working on the, on the local paper in Wolverhampton, the Express at the start, you know, if there, something bad had happened, it would probably happen in Blockswitch. But, you know, a really very working class town in a working class part of the country. And Boris had been on a visit to, uh, for the local election campaign, I think. Um, and people were still buzzing from it. They hadn't been there, but they knew that he'd been into the Weatherspoons in Blockswitch and he'd been pulling pipes. And they just thought it was fantastic. Now, they don't think that he's like them at all. They know that he's very different to them. But they get the impression that they, he quite likes them and is prepared to take them as he finds them. And that if you found him in the weather spoons and blocks, which you could have a bit of a laugh and a joke with him and enjoy. And he would listen to you and he'd kind of appreciate what you stood for and your values. And that's very, very, very powerful. So it's not about it's it's not about being like the electorate, coming from the electorate, coming from from those people. I mean, the black country is not classically regarded as part of the Red Wall, but you know, it's a very proletarian post-industrial place. Um, but the capacity to appeal to people in those places is powerful, is very, very powerful. He has got it. He has got the star quality. No and is it matter. just the persona and the charisma, or is it also that it's that wedded to a form of politics that is socially conservative? Um, uh, in I don't some think ways, so. no. I wouldn't describe the Prime Minister as socially conservative. I don't think his instincts lie in that direction whatsoever. I think his instincts, sensibly for a politician whose career depends on, to a degree, popularity, lie with the 80% of the population. That's why the taking of the knee, when number 10, not necessarily him, but number 10 found themselves on the wrong side of the argument, was a serious misstep in many ways. One that you know is recoverable. I don't think he's interested in uh, you know, in, in this stuff particularly, uh, you know, he is someone who, you know, happily marched at Pride, etc., like that, twice elected mayor of an extremely socially progressive left-wing city like London. Um, but he understands the issues that 
us kind of pollsters, researchers describe as 80-20 issues, um, where the cultural left find themselves so far removed. Now, I wouldn't say that people in places like Blockswitch or, you know, Bishop Auckland or I'm thinking of Oldham, all the places where I've run focus groups over, over recent years are socially conservative at all. One of the wonderful things that has happened in this country, in my view, over the last 20, 30 years, is that things like anti-racism have become, and I'm going to use a social science word here, you know, have become hegemonic. They have become values that, and if you look at the polling that, you know, the wonderful Sunder Karpala has done British Future and things like that, they have become issues that are shared across 80% of the public people under 60, certainly. Um, and what I think would, you know, what the prime minister could usefully do is capitalize it. Someone started to call it Southgate patriotism. And Southgate has enunciated it pretty well. Um, and Southgate represents it pretty well. It's a kind of take it as you find it. Everyone deserves a fair shake, fairness. You know, with the discourse of fairness, which is so powerful, you know, it's how people in this country so often describe things, whether something is fair or not. It's how people see the welfare system. It's how people see, it's how people saw Brexit to a degree. It was only fair that Brexit should actually happen, given that 52% of the public had voted for it. Uh, so is he interested in launching a culture war? No. But as a politician, where he, when he sees, I think, well, he'd be well advised to do this anyway, I think, where he sees the cultural left, for want of a better term, get way ahead of where 80% of the public are, and that's on things like statues, to a degree on other cultural issues, you know, he is savvy enough to position himself with the 80%. Do I think he's a cultural conservative? No, not in the slightest. I don't think he has a, you know, a small c cultural conservative, social conservative bone in his body. But he understands that you need to take the public with you and you need to go with the public as well to a degree. Because you hear sometimes the ways opponents describe him and you can see why uh, in the aftermath of Brexit with some of the things that were done and said in that campaign with uh, the malaise around the, the final against Italy and some of the stuff we saw... Um, that people might go, oh my God, you know, this feels like uh, a sort of nationalism is rearing its head and it's and it's scary and we don't like it. For all the progress we've made, there's still an underbelly there. And, th and they might attach Boris to that in some way. Um, but you think that's th the wrong reading of it? I think it's the wrong reading of it. I think it confuses it with Brexit as well. And there are a million reasons for Brexit. And everyone's got one. But what Brexit wasn't was get rid of my Polish neighbour, I hate them. You know, I remember, where, where was it? I can't remember where I did that, these particular groups. It was somewhere like Long Eaton or somewhere like that, somewhere, you know, Long Eaton. I know very well, yes. You know, places like Long Eaton or, you know, towns around Derby and Nottingham, those bits of the country are sort of, you know, we used to use them uh, and, uh, as kind of control groups because they are such a good representation of, of. But if you go to places like that, and uh, it was a focus group in the Novotel 
just off the A52 between Nottingham and Derby, just off the M1. I can remember it very well. But if you know, if you talk to Brexit voters and Leave voters there in places like that, uh, um, you know, it wasn't about it wasn't about dislike of the outside world at all. It wasn't dislike of their their Polish or their Lithuanian neighbours or anything like that. These people have become acculturated astonishingly quickly. Their kids are in the same school, you know. Families living in places like that, living throughout England, you know, their kids, you know, have got friends who are called Lukash or whatever. Um, it, you know, I think the left's impression of it comes from Brexit and from people who were, I'm afraid to use the term, bad losers on Brexit um, in many ways and haven't got used to it. Now, I was on, I was a civil servant at the time, so I, you know, couldn't participate in the campaign. But you know, I was on the side of Remain. I wanted Remain to win. Um, uh, but I hope that me and a lot of other people, certainly a lot of the public have, who voted Remain, and a lot of working class people voted Remain, especially younger people, have moved on from that. But there's a lot of people who haven't, and it's going to scar British politics for a long time. So what does the Labour Party need to do? I mean, you, you talk about, obviously, as we all know, it's it my opinion, I guess you share it, it needs to be closer to the centre ground, it needs to get rid of the cranks, it needs to effectively recreate new Labour under another name if it wants to win. But what should its lines of attack be on the Tories and on Boris Johnson? I think it would be kind of unfair for me to uh, necessarily do that and i don't want to i'd rather say what i think what how the labor party should talk about it itself um there's one thing i will say though however um is that um leveling up is a big part and that's kind of cut through to a degree although nobody knows still what the term leveling up actually means i did a focus group a couple of years ago in bishop auckland and the most popular opinion um, was that it was some form of revolutionary Bolshevism. Um, <laughs> Did so people use that people... exact term? No, no, they didn't. They thought they said things like, is, is that communism? Is that like what they had in Russia and stuff? Wow. Uh, but uh, nobody knows what levelling up means, but they kind of know, you know what the term means, but they kind of know and they kind of expect for their towns and its people in towns particularly. And the Red Wall thing is essentially a towns thing. It's a long eaten thing. You know, it's a um, it's a Haywood and Middleton thing. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's Huddersfield, etc. And Huddersfield's interesting point. I'll come back to Huddersfield in a moment. Um, is they are expecting their towns, their places, the places that they live. The public realm has decayed. You know, in the last ten years, people are very worried about crime, increasingly worried about crime, antisocial behaviour, stuff like that. Okay, can I just they, ask you about that? So I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But when the Tories have been in control for that whole period in which the public realm was decayed, and I understand yeah. that Labour have basically left the field, but do people blame the Tories at all? Or is it still just that? Well, given the choice between that or Jeremy Corbyn, I'll take that. They'll take that. They'll take Yobbo's hanging around the bus shelter and the possibility of their car getting nicked over Jeremy Corbyn. He was that unpopular. Why am we? You know, viscerally. But do, they, but do they blame the Tories? Do they say, well, look, I'm begrudgingly voting Tory to keep him out, but by the way, I don't like what you've done to the country? Or do they not connect like, the two? Look, I mean, everyone is different, and let's not lump in, um, lump in everybody the same. 
But Boris was sufficiently different and sufficiently associated with the need to get Brexit done that he trumped previous association for a lot of people with the Tories. Um, and as well, he, you know, he hadn't been a, you know, he wasn't associated hugely with the Cameron government, for example, yeah. at all. You know, he's associated, of course, you know, with the May government for the early part of it, but he wasn't on the scene. So, but to go back to what Labour needs to do, or the line of attack that might be useful is people really expecting visible change for places to be made better. If that isn't delivered, then the Tories are going to be in trouble. You know, you said that you would make Bishop Auckland, Oldham, although the Oldham seats are plums that could fall into the Tories' laps next time around. There's bits of the red wall that are still hanging on. Um, you said that you would make our places better, um, and you haven't. You failed. Uh, that's not yes. going to happen in Teesside. So that would, you know, and that is why the appointment of my old boss, Michael Gove, um, to MHCLG or Department of Leveling Up or whatever it's eventually called is so important, I think. And the other appointment there that's incredibly important is Neil O'Brien, another former boss of mine um, who I worked for at Think Tank 10 years ago, uh, who is phenomenally bright and driven. He is MP for Harborough, which is, you know, the stockbroker, Leicester's answer to the stockbroker belt, et cetera, south of the city. Uh, but is from Huddersfield originally um, and um, still speaks with a West Yorkshire accent, etc. Um, and has been thinking about this stuff for a long time um, and did, uh, you know, has done a lot of work on it. And he's one of the best policy brains in Whitehall without a shadow of a doubt and has been living this stuff for over 10 years, even longer, perhaps. Um, the, so sort of the Gove O'Brien and Kenny Badenoch, who is also going to be in that department, who is also extremely bright and looks to have been slightly traduced in Vice this week, um, is, uh, is uh, um, uh, you know, that's going to be really important. And I have the greatest faith in, in Gove and O'Brien, there's no doubt about it, but they face a really tricky task. You know, time is not on their side. You know, one of Michael's one of Michael's pet sayings is it's always later than you think, and it really is in this case. So they need to get their skates on. There's no doubt about it. But you know, I'm not one of those people who believes that the next election is done and dusted. Far from it. Um, and there are some talented faces in Labour. Uh, people starting to come through. Not as many as Labour supporters might hope, but someone like West Streeting, um, for example, is uh, I think. You know, he's more than a backstory, put it that way. You know, although he does have an extremely interesting, compelling backstory coming from a single parent in a council flat uh, to Cambridge University to, you know, a seat, uh, uh, being a proud and out gay man. Um, I think, you know, Wes is, um, Wes is a talented voice. Um, and there are others as well, maybe not as much, many as people would hope. But I think Labour needs to enunciate itself as, once again, as Tony Blair said, the political wing of the British people. Um, and it went so far away from that. I mean, it really is impossible to underestimate the degree of loathing that people had. I remember doing, 
with focus groups, sometimes you do a cold open, and I always like so cold open with focus groups. I don't like people. I like people to come along. They usually, uh, if I'm doing something political or particularly, you know, controversial, you know, the title you're invited, you know, they'll be recruited, but come and talk about current affairs or something like that. They are usually more used to being asked to give their opinion on a new flavor of yogurt or whatever. Uh, but I uh, did a cold open with, you know, so what do you think about this political leader? What do you think about this political leader? And what I is a cold open? Before. What does that mean? It just means um, that you, you're you not educating, the, it's called educating the group. You're not giving the group any information at all. You're just putting out questions without any context, just kind of doing a, doing a dip, really. Uh, just seeing what their initial reaction is. Um, and um, I, uh, you know, the visceral reactions that one got against Jeremy Corbyn on that stuff were uh, were phenomenal, just phenomenal. So one group again in the black country, I remember it vividly. So what do you think about Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, and just the entire group of Labour voters, these were, these were all Labour voters uh, in a hotel, um, uh, sort of, you know, in the heart of the black country. Uh, he wants shooting. My that God. Was, you know, that's what they want. But you have to remember, look, you know, I went to school with people who served in Northern Ireland and were blown up um, or were shot or were damaged in some other way. You know, a friend of mine blown up at Ballygawley, uh, soldier with a light infantry. Um, that's actually not uncommon. Um, I mean, uh, you know, people of my generation, whatever, a lot of us knew people who served in Northern Ireland, for example, and, uh, you know, every estate knew a kid who went off to serve in Northern Ireland. There's a kid from every estate, or several, many, in lots of parts of the country, like the Northeast, large numbers. Um, so the association with the provos that started to stick for Corbyn was a real problem. But anti-Semitism was a huge problem as well. And people around Corbyn, I know, kind of tried to comfort themselves with the idea that this wasn't cutting the mustard. It wasn't, you know, pe people in, uh, you know, Kidderminster don't know any Jews or whatever. People in... Uh, Again, you know, the black country. How many Jews in the black country? Um, but it really got through some. And part of it's what I was talking about with the racism thing. And I, I remember doing groups on this. And it made Corbyn just look odd to people because in those places, although there is still racism, of course, and I wouldn't deny that at all. Uh, and there is structural racism to a degree in, in, in things. Uh, we know from some of the work that the May did. Um, but racists look weird to the majority of the British public now. And you, you speak to places and places that are heavily multicultural, you know, Smethwick, for example, you know, where there was that by-election in 64, or, or there was that election in 64. And you talk to people and, you know, this is the white working class community. And they say, yeah, it used to be really bad. And the BNP was around here and we had the National Front. And, you know, you know, Smethic, you know, we had the riots and things like that. But we've gone past that now. 
we've gone past that and we, you know we take people as we find them and we've moved on from that so anything that smacks of racism uh which is what anti-semitism of course is just made corbyn look like a freak to these people anyway because some people might say, well, Boris Johnson said racist things and yet people are happy to vote for him. Do people not perceive Boris Johnson to be racist? No, I don't think they do. And without having the things in front of me, I kind of feel uncomfortable and pronouncing it, but I know that, you know, the things that you mean. Um, but I think as well, I mean, never underestimate the... Never underestimate the, the wisdom and the intelligence of the British public. They got that some silly, ill-considered, throwaway remarks in a newspaper column by a controversialist newspaper columnist were of a different order of magnitude to someone who was seen as how to have introduced structural racism into their party. And on anti-Semitism, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting point you make about... Some areas, a lot of people won't know any Jewish people outside of perhaps even parts of London. Um, so was it that it took the public, because 2017 Corbyn obviously has a much better result. Was it a, a, Was it the fact that it took the public a while to cotton on to this and to yeah. figure out what it was? Yeah, it did. And so it took strenuous work by the people that cared about this to keep it in front of people to keep it in front of people's nose so 2017 Corbyn was a bit of a blank canvas really people didn't know an awful lot about him they you know the magic grandpa shtick was uh was quite powerful by 2019 they had been educated and the provo stuff the anti-semitism stuff and the the rest of the crankery was hitting home seriously and the kind of incoherence of the manifesto uh, I organised a huge, just before the 2019 general election, uh, project for the Times newspaper, which was fascinating, uh, with dozens of focus groups all taking place in the same place on the same day, and then an opportunity for people to vote and stuff. And it was a fascinating exercise, difficult to arrange, but increasingly, you know, but amazing. The call the election, blow my own trumpet here slightly, call the election, exactly right. Um, and we had like about we had about a hundred swing voters from key constituencies, swing constituencies across the country, and kind of discussing the manifesto with them. Uh, they just thought it was incoherent. I mean, why is the government paying for broadband? I can pay for broadband. I, I've really got no problem with my broadband at the moment. It could be slow a bit times. Such. Why do we need the government to pay for broadband? Why do you know? I'm earning thirty five thousand pounds a year. I can afford it. You know, there's other stuff that the government should be doing. Thank you very much. What does it say about your priorities? Uh, so by 2019, they were less willing, voters were less willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they had, uh, and on the anti-Semitism stuff, it took, frankly, her heroic effort by people like Luciana Berger, Margaret Hodge, Louise Elman, brave Jewish women MPs, and their supporters and people as well, like Wes, uh, to uh, keep it uh, keep it in the public mind and get it into the public mind. Uh, and the media weren't always interested. Some outlets were, some weren't. There was very little on it about on the BBC, other than John Wall, John Wes Panorama program, of course, with the immensely brave whistleblowers, many of whom were themselves 
people who've been part of the Corbyn project or associated themselves with the Corbyn project earlier, you know, they weren't all disgruntled ex nonsies you know. Just looking ahead then, finally, because I've kept you for so long, but it's so, I mean, I could still go on for hours and hours, so hopefully you'll come back on Very again in the future, because it's superb talking to you. Um, think about the environment. This is the big thing now, net zero, and there's COP26 in a few weeks. How big a deal is that? How exercised to the public about net zero? They are increasingly exercised about it. Well, uh, how, well, first question, how exercised are they? Sorry, I don't want to rephrase your question, but I think there's two questions there, really. Oh, by all means, please how, do. Please make it better. Uh, no. How exercised are they uh, about climate change? And the answer is yes and increasingly. The idea that the climate change denialism, I'd say it was about as salient and about as popular an idea as vaccine scepticism is. You know, it's... It's retreated to the fringes. The idea that man-made climate change, uh, global warming, whatever you want to call it, is not a problem is for the birds. Uh, that well, is very, very, very rare these days, increasingly. I mean, there's, you know, I, I don't have the quant in front of me, but you know, it's not a common idea. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. In focus groups I've done on this issue, and on some of the polling that I've done on this issue, which is a huge issue in British politics, it's going to dominate in the next 10 years. Um, and is a massive is issue for many of the clients um, I work with now at Portland. Um, they, um, they, you know, there are particular groups of people for whom it is incredibly, you know, just bizarre. So gardeners, for example, now, gardening is a very, very popular hobby in this country, nation of gardeners. Gardeners have all noticed that stuff is blooming earlier. You know, the stuff is coming out of the ground when it never used to come out of the ground at all. So, again, the idea that global warming is a, is a threat, climate change is possibly already happening or is it already happening, is become socialised. The tricky question, of course, is what do you do about it? How do you do it? And the default answer for you know the center of gravity in, in you know i'm not going to say that everyone thinks this or whatever but the you know the center of gravity the most important groups the most common opinion is you know i'd like to do stuff about it but you're asking me to pay more i don't have a lot of spare cash anyway people earning average earnings don't have much spare cash they're just about managing to quote a friend of mine uh so I'd rather not make business pay or make the Chinese pay, not me. And I can't afford an electric car. Uh, I don't know whether I'll actually do what um, I want them to. And the infrastructure uh, is, is, you know, we need help with the infrastructure and the infrastructure needs to be developed. And I don't have a driveway, um, all of this stuff. People will be interested. People, you know, so the tricky bit is is how is how you actually deliver you know how you take carbon out how you move you know there are particularly difficult issues around domestic heat for example which is not talked about as much as things like bvs um, um and the hydrogen economy um is but domestic heat is really important um and is a huge source of emissions and it's going to be really expensive to fix 
you know, uh, so that is the kind of difficult issue that um, is going to have to be solved. But the default answer is people are keen to do something for it, but they they don't have much spare cash. They'd rather someone else paid for it, either business, and they don't really, you know, they don't really think realize that that just means extra costs for consumers. Um, or the Chinese, uh, they should pay for it. Um, so. It, it's a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating area. It's going to dominate British politics for decades to come. And it's going to dominate world politics. It's going to dominate a lot of things. And it's going to be incredibly important to take the public with you and to take key other you know, key groups within the public with you. And that's why, humbly, you know, research is going to be really important. There's a perception that the young people really care about the environment, old people less so. Is that an observation you'd corroborate? Yeah, I, I think there is some of that, some of that. But, you know, those, I remember doing yet another anecdote from a focus group. I remember doing uh, a focus group of Tory activists in Farnham, you know, in deepest Surrey, Hampshire borders. You can't get much more Tory than that at all. And they were all absolutely gung-ho for doing stuff. And these are people in their kind of 60s and stuff like that. They were gung-ho for doing stuff. The most single, most important person uh, for them, you know, is David Attenborough. You know, if David Attenborough says something is necessary, I will, you know, sign them up. I mean, talk about, you know, talk about communicator. You know, they would, they, they, you know, they would sign, join the British Army if David Attenborough told them to do it. Um, so, um, it's, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's more complicated than just young versus old. And, and, you know, don't underestimate, it's one of the mistakes that I think the Remain campaign made was not talking about the, um, the, um, the kind of obligation that grandparents who care about their grandchildren have on behalf of their grandchildren, you know, on behalf of their grandchildren. So, yes, but more, it, as ever, it's more complicated. Gabriel. There's so much more. I mean, even just the young versus old thing in terms of voting behaviour and social attitudes, we could do a whole episode on. I've kept you now. Um, it's, it's, well, if I leave you with one thing. Yes. Sorry. If I leave you with one thing, that tension between the young and the old is by far the greatest tension in society. And uh, it still pains me to think of myself as old, but I am. And... Um, the young are so very different. Another just quick one. Yeah. The most socially progressive focus group I've ever done. First time Tory voters in Sunderland. Working class, first time working class Tory voters in Sunderland. Under 30. Astonishing. I mean, they, they, they you know, in terms of wokeness, you know, they put a Guardian leader conference to shame. Um, they were, <laughs> you know, so look, the public opinion, everything, endlessly fascinating, so much complications, labels, you know, obscure more than they, um, than they show. And uh, uh, I'm fascinated by it. Oh, man. I c you know what? I'm only ending it here because this is almost two hours long. We've recorded this interview over two days. I don't want to abuse the, the generosity that you've shown towards me by giving me so much of your time. I would love uh, to get you back uh, on. I 
I'm looking forward to uh, City at Loftus Road shortly. So, uh... <laughs> well, yes, of course. You've got to go and watch the football. Gabriel, this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, a privilege, and I'm a big fan. Thanks, oh, man. cheers, mate. That's very kind. Well, there you go, Gabriel Millen. I couldn't keep him any longer. He had to go to the football. Um, I don't know if you could notice the difference in those two. There was an interview conducted over two separate sessions. So if you could hear um, birds tweeting in the background, Gabriel was at home on Saturday. I mean, what a guy to... <laughs> I feel bad enough when I've kept people for too long during a working day, but to give up the start of their weekend to come on here, I was very, very grateful. But absolutely worth it. But the problem is, is you think, right, well, purely... Basically, out of manners, this should end now. I mean, I would happily just keep going. Um, but he had to get to the football. But that bit right at the end, we start talking about the difference between young and old. He said, I should have asked that at the start. But we could always get people back. That's the great thing about this show is uh, people can always come back. There's a whole load of people that have never been on yet. And a whole load of people that I've got lined up that you're going to love. Including at those live shows at the Duchess Theatre. And those lineups. My word, the first night. Andy Burnham. Monday the 27th of September at the Duchess Theatre in the West End. It's a beautiful venue. It's the new home of the political party. Two weeks later, Penny Morden. Two weeks after that, Caroline Flynn. Two weeks after that, Anasawa. Two weeks after that, Anthony Scaramucci. Two weeks after that, Jeremy Hunt. Two weeks after that, a Christmas special. Oh, my word. This is like, if that was a festival, that is, if politics was Glastonbury, that, if politics was festivals, that is a Glastonbury-level festival. Michael Evis would be saying, oh my God, we've got the Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney and Oasis are getting back together. This is the... I mean, what a lineup! Holy hell. Why wouldn't you go? Don't answer that out loud. Just simply go to mattford.com slash live and buy your tickets. I mean, you don't just want to go to one of them, do you? Go to them all. Treat yourself. Um, and come to those fantastic shows. Andy Burnham, a week today, Monday the 27th of September. I cannot wait. And that is during Labour Party Conference Week, which, as we know, is always the calmest time in politics. So thank you so much for downloading this. Please tell everyone about it. Share it. Um, leave a five-star review wherever you can. And um, I've kept you for more than long enough. But thank you so much to Gabriel Millen for being such a fantastic guest. I think we all just need to go away now. Have a cup of tea and just digest all that. I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. 